Thanks, Pierre. Um, how was your guys' weekend so far? I need to tell you a little bit about mine. You don't have any choice, I'm going to tell you anyway, but my mother-in-law's birthday is this week, and she had one request from the family she wanted to do zip lining. So, you guys ever do this? So, picture one. On the left, that's my mother-in-law getting ready to go. That's not her first time. She did three times yesterday. This is crazy, right? And that's me getting ready on the right. And this is my first time doing it. And Mariana's going to play just a very short, like a three-second video. But tell me if you would do this. Hands? Yeah, you would do that? Oh, man, I would do it again. That was fun. Cape and Rage. Fundy, part of Fundy, just beyond, and uh, anyway, let's go, right? Let's go. Let's do this. Uh, Today, we're in John chapter 3, one of the most famous chapters for Christians, and we're going to read verses 1 through 21 to kind of set the stage for the content today, and so let's read it together. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, religious leader, who was a Pharisee, and after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can't hear the wind and tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, We tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted the bronze snake in the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And this is the judgment based on this fact. God's light came into the world But people love the darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see they are doing what God wants. Father, we thank you for a powerful time of worship. Thank you for the team who led us, and thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you that we have a chance to do this together, not just in private, but publicly we can do this together. We thank you so much 
uh, for your presence here. We thank you uh, for your word as we're looking into this today, and I thank you for the preparation this week and how you've already been moving in me. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray you would speak through me at this time. You would challenge us. We believe your word is a lamp to guide our feet and our path, and we pray for that illumination right now, and that you would expose things that need to be exposed, and God, that we would ultimately be changed by you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This series, uh, this summer is called Identity Theft. And I know you might be thinking about a film with Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy, but this isn't really about credit card fraud or something like that. But maybe you've been trying to find your identity. Maybe you lost your identity or you feel it was stolen. But what if you didn't realize there was a theft taking place? Is it possible that you haven't really understood your true identity yet? Or maybe... Maybe this is the identity you thought you wanted, or maybe it's possible that your younger self had different priorities and about who you are and who you will become. Well, in a way, even Crosspoint is working to find her identity once again, and we need to find our identity as individuals and as a community. But how do you respond when someone asks, who are you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? There's probably a few things you could start anywhere with maybe your nationality or your marital status or your age, um, what you do or what you did. Uh, Any of these things are possible. But what if our identity doesn't come from what we do, but from what Christ has done for us? Let's look at Nicodemus. He's going to be the character that we're looking at with identity today and Uh, What do we already know about him from what we've read and from surrounding scripture? Well, we know that he's a man, not just that, he's Jewish, and he's a religious leader. And not just a religious leader, but he's a Pharisee. And beyond this, we actually know that he's part of the Sanhedrin, which is like a ruling council. So it tells us probably a little bit about his age as well, and that there's only a limited number of people in that role. And Nicodemus appears three different times in John's gospel. The first one that we're focusing on right now is chapter three, where he comes to Jesus with a statement, and then a question, and then another question. Later, we'll talk about chapter seven for a moment, where he comes with a bold question to his peers. And then finally, in chapter 19, we only hear of his action, and sometimes actions speak louder than words. But let's go back to his first appearance in John 3, where it says, after dark one evening. So it already sets the stage of what it looks like. He has this statement in verse 2 to Jesus. He starts by saying, Rabbi. And what is this? This is respectful. It's, it's him using the title teacher. And, and to the Jews, this would be a respectful thing. And he says, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So think about breaking that down for a moment. We all know, all? Well, what about his peers? We'll look at that in a moment. Some oppose, for sure. And no? Well, yes, there's some signs that he's talking about in evidence, but is this, is this faith or a sure thing? We're not sure just yet. And then he says that God has sent you. So maybe not just a rabbi, as he introduced him as, but, but potentially a prophet or the Messiah himself. And then he says, to teach us. Well, what is that? To make things visible, to illuminate, or even to expose. And finally, he says, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. What he's saying is you couldn't do this 
on your own. You couldn't do it without God. These signs or these evidences are what a prophet or possibly the Messiah would do. So here's the stage. It's after dark and Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And we know from reading scripture that in daylight, interactions between Pharisees and Jesus were often heated. And sometimes they were trying to test or to trap him. But Nicodemus begins with this positive and respectful statement. He's demonstrating he's not here to threaten, but he's humbly approaching Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. How often does Jesus surprise us by taking the conversation in a different direction? He says, unless you are born again. John, the gospel writer, led with this in chapter one where he said, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And Jesus is saying, this is how you see the kingdom of God. This is what lights it up, what illuminates a different world to us. Naturally, you might have questions too. And in verse four, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man, and he's probably saying of himself, how can an old man like me go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus' response seems to reference, once again, John chapter one. It also seems to refer to baptism by being born of water and spirit. And since we know the full story and we can see how baptism identifies us with Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, the old life is gone, dead and buried while we're under the water. And our new life arrives in resurrection style when we come up out of the water. We're spiritually alive. We were dead, but now the new life has come as we celebrated just on August 8th where 10 individuals did this together. Just down at the river, this is what this is representing And this is miraculous evidence, not only that God is with you, but that God is in you. But Nicodemus has more questions. How are these things possible? Jesus' response here sort of implies that these things are basic, especially for someone like Nicodemus, who's a religious teacher. But think about it. The gospel is simple enough that a child could understand, but complicated enough that the so-called wise would be confused. And notice, Jesus comments on Nicodemus' identity here. He says, you are a respected Jewish teacher. He's at the top. So who he is has a lot to do with the initial interaction here. But listen, I know that we're looking at a religious person today, but hear this. Being religious isn't a prerequisite for coming to Jesus, and it doesn't disqualify you either. Then shortly after, Jesus comments on his own identity. He says, the son of man has come down from heaven. Well, son of man is probably Jesus' favorite title that he uses for himself throughout the gospel accounts. And does this confirm Nicodemus' statement from earlier that God has sent you, that God is with you? He said, God has sent you to teach us. And Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and us here as we're looking into this interaction. Now, the next piece might sound strange, but it would have made complete sense to Nicodemus because of his upbringing, because of his study. We know that he's also a religious teacher, so this would have been a normal thing for him to hear, at least the first part. Jesus makes reference to a strange situation with Moses found in Numbers 21. He says, 
And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So he would have understood the first part, but this second part wouldn't be fully understood until later. So the idea of lifting up a bronze stake in a pole, that's weird enough, right? Is that people would look at it and be healed, healed from poisonous snake bites. Jesus is saying, once he himself is lifted up on the cross, people can be healed permanently. Could this also be symbolic of the serpent's bite in Genesis 3? Now, one thing to note is about God's approach in this instance, and possibly some insight into his identity or our theology, is God didn't remove the problem. He created a solution that brought healing, but he doesn't actually remove the problem as people expect it. Our God doesn't just remove problems. Sometimes, sometimes we have to experience pain before we experience healing. He doesn't always remove difficult situations from us, but he is willing to step down into our difficult situations with us. And this next part is a great example of this. This next part might be the most famous Christian verse, John 3.16. And it reads, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What Jesus is doing here is he's sharing the heart of the gospel with Nicodemus. God came up with a solution to the world's problem. And this is how God deals with sin and with death. Not by completely removing them, at least not yet, but by stepping down into our situation. Not just that, but even sacrificing for us. God the Father sends his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus takes on flesh and blood, becoming fully God, yet somehow fully human. He lives a sinless life. Jesus is lifted up, crucified on a Roman cross. He suffers and dies. He defeats death as we were just singing together. And on the third day, remember, he borrowed that tomb for a short time, thanks to Joseph of Arimathea. And he defeats death. Our God stepped down into our situation so that one day we could step up into his. And this is eternal life with God. The eternal life is the result of being born again, born of the Spirit. That's the context of what we're looking at today, what Jesus is trying to get across to this Jewish leader. That God's kingdom is eternal, so we need to be made into eternal beings, beginning with our spirit. And notice in this whole scripture passage how the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are included in this today. And Jesus continues in verse 17, he says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. And this is the heart of the father's plan to redeem not just the Jewish people, but all people. Many of Nicodemus's peers would have been hoping for the Messiah to overthrow Roman oppression and lead to a military victory. John's gospel is teaching us that Jesus, the Messiah, is full of grace and truth, of unfailing love and faithfulness. He writes that the law comes through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And Christ being the Greek word translated from the Hebrew word Messiah. John's gospel was originally written in Greek. Why? Because he understood Jesus' message was not just for the Jewish people. It was for the world, and the world spoke Greek at the time. And he continues in 
verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But to those who do what is right, come into the light so that others can see they are doing what God wants. So notice this theme of light that's in this passage. God's light came into the world, but the opposite of that. People loved the darkness more than the light. John wrote about this in chapter 1 as well. He said that God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, the Jews. Even they rejected him. Jesus is saying that God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it. Why? Because they're afraid. They fear that their sins will be exposed by the light of God. And does this remind you of anything? Maybe Genesis 3, the situation at that moment when their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid because I was afraid. I was naked. He was afraid of their sins being exposed. And John says that Jesus knew what was in each person's heart. And Jesus exposes what's hidden in the dark. But thankfully, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Amen? Jesus finishes this conversation by saying, but those who do what is right come into the light so others can see they are doing what God wants. He's saying, don't keep it secret. Come to the light so that others can see. Light exposes, yes, but it also illuminates. And you, we, get to illuminate to make things visible for others. His word illuminates this for us as we were just praying that your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. This could be a part of our daily prayers along with reading his word. God, your light, your word is this light that lights up my my path. You guide me. You could pray this. And Nicodemus appears again in John chapter 7. Many of his peers thought that Jesus was from Galilee. They knew the Messiah wasn't coming from Galilee. But you know how the Christmas story goes, right? How it teaches us Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a descendant. He was a descendant of King David. Well, they didn't know that. They were blind to this. They couldn't see what has been illuminated to the rest of us by the gospel accounts. One of Nicodemus's peers, we're not sure which one, but one of these ruling leaders said, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him, him being Jesus? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of God's law. God's curse is on them. But then, and I think boldly, Nicodemus speaks up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? 
Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. So in this context, Nicodemus had lost respect among the Pharisees. To his peers, his bold question would have equaled a public profession of his faith in Jesus. His identity has changed. And doesn't change always come with a loss? Think about it. We need to count that cost of the loss, but realize the massive upside life in Christ. I mentioned Nicodemus appears one more time. This time he's silent, but there's a lot in here in chapter 19. It's after the darkest afternoon in history. We call it Good Friday. Nicodemus would have been in the crowd. He would have finally seen what was mentioned earlier. He would have seen Jesus lifted up on the cross. Remember in John 3, 14, where it said, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is what Jesus meant. He's seeing it. And we read that Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, he's coming. He owns this tomb. He wants to give it. It's, it's never been used before. He wants to use it for Jesus. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. And he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Think about that. Have you ever lifted 75 pounds on your shoulder? Now, he might have had a donkey or a servant or someone with him, but... This was something that he planned to use to embalm Jesus, and it would have been still a public profession of his faith and identifying with, with Jesus, this one who had just died. Nicodemus had found a new identity somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 7 and definitely chapter 19. He has found this new identity. But what about our new identity? Well, our identity changes when we are born again. And born again is... It really means that we have a new identity in Christ. We're going from the darkness to the light. We're going from old to new again. We're going from blind to being able to see, from trying to earn God's favor to receiving his grace. From an orphan to an adopted child of God. We were dead. Now we're alive in Christ. The old life has gone. The new life has begun. Remember Nicodemus' first statement of faith to Jesus. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus was sent by the Father, but not just to teach us. His life was offered up for us to change our status, to change our identity so we could be born again. The Spirit gives us new life when we come to the light. What that means is when we believe Jesus and accept him, he gives us the right to become children of God. Just as John wrote in his first chapter of his account, he says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So my question to you is, what are you doing in the dark? And what will you do with the light? Throughout scripture, there's this theme of light. From the first chapter in Genesis, the first thing we hear God say is, let there be light. In the final chapter of Revelation, where John writes, there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. No more night, no more darkness. John also writes in his first letter, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now de declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. This is why John writes this, and this is a massive statement. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Who is the light? Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. You know, Isaiah prophesied about this, that time of darkness and despair, and doesn't it sometimes feel like that even today? It will not go on forever. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That light is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. But how are these things possible, as Nicodemus asked a few times? But with him, all things are possible. We're about to sing a song where it says, in the darkness, in the darkest night, he can light it up. So again, what are you going to do in the dark? What will you do with the light? Today could be a day of personal revival for each and every one of us. And couldn't revival start in this room today? Father, we thank you so much for your presence. We thank you for your word. Thank you for what has been illuminated to us today. Thank you for the way your Holy Spirit has been speaking to each and every one of us in these last few moments. And not just to illuminate, but possibly even to expose But God, would you help remove that fear that some of us have of coming into your light? Would you help us, and as we're singing this next song, not just giving praise to you, but also really making this a prayer for us as individuals, us as the people in this exact service, those of us online, for those of us in this city and and beyond, that, that God, something would be stirred up, that God, ultimately, you would begin revival in us and us as individuals, as us as a church, as us as a greater church, so that our city would be impacted by what it is you're stirring up here today. So God, have your way in the rest of this service. We thank you so much for the way you spoke to us. We thank you that you are the light of the world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.